Okay, good morning everybody. It's good to be back with you this week. I just want to praise the Lord for a fruitful time of ministry last week. Uh, it was a blessing to go back to a place where I had some fond experiences as a boy hearing the gospel and to go and give testimony about uh, the Lord's work and about the gospel and to be there while my son was able to experience camp just like I did as a boy. Um, yesterday was the 60th uh, anniversary for Camp Caraway, and they had a staff reunion yesterday, and so we were blessed to be a part of that. It was very kind what those folks did for us, and I actually uh, connected with a man who was one of my counselors when I was Josiah's age, and the interesting thing is we graduated from the same seminary, and he pastors a church here in Morganton, so I thought that was pretty neat. And um, But it was a good week. I had an opportunity to share about missions, and I try to be very blunt. I'm very blunt and straightforward when I preach in here, and I trust that when you see me preach on the street, where it's not necessarily people who would agree with what is spoken, that I would be the same, that you'd see the same straightforward, plain speech, and that also... If given opportunity to share with children, it would be plain and straightforward. And so that's what I endeavor to do this week. And you never really know what the response will be, but I was told that that was very much appreciated. I was told that there are very few who speak like that anymore and that we need it and that the children in our churches need it and that this nation needs it. So I'm very blessed by that. I um, had a few boys... Uh, uh, give their hearts to the Lord this week, and I was told specifically it was a result of some of the blunt preaching that I was able to share. So I give God praise for that. Um, one one kid, I was able to give a Bible who didn't have one. The only Bible in his house was one that his dad had that was about 40 years old. So I find that interesting. We live in a very different day and time than when I was a kid. You grew up in the Baptist church, you, did, you had your Royal Ambassadors Clubs, and what you did is you went to camp in the summer, and it's not like that anymore. Some of these kids grew up in homes, they never hear the gospel. America's a great big mission field, and our kids are being poisoned in the schools with um, doctrines that lead to destruction. So being a witness to kids and to children and to young people is always uh, a blessing I more so enjoy uh, trying to exhort and encourage the counselors, too. Um, and so God gave opportunity for that this week, and I, I praise him for it. Um, one of the things I, I talked about this past week in terms of missions is the very first missionary that Jesus himself ever sent out. Now, we did, Jesus did ordain 12 apostles. But the very first missionary Jesus ever sent out was also the first missionary ever sent to the Gentiles. And this is commonly overlooked in the scriptures. We often default to the apostles or the 70 that Jesus sent out or even to Paul the apostle. But it's interesting to look at the first missionary Jesus sent out and to consider where he sent him. The very first missionary that our Lord sent out was a man that was possessed of many devils. He was a demoniac. He lived in the tombs. He ran around naked. His, his, uh, his antics kept the townspeople in fear. And when Jesus and his disciples landed in the land of the Gadarenes, 
near Decapolis on the other side of the lake, this man came out from the tombs to meet them. And Jesus, this man, even with all the demons in him, knew who Jesus was. And Jesus cast those demons out and they went into the swine who ran off the cliff into the sea. And this man was healed of his infirmity. He was delivered of his demons. And the one thing he wanted to do more than anything else after that was to go with Jesus, to go with him and to be with him in his ministry. Now, the townspeople came out and they saw this man clothed and sitting in his right mind. You can read about these things in Mark chapter 5, I believe. And they said, <laughs> they saw this and they said to the Lord, you guys need to get out of here. We want you, please leave. Leave our coast. And the Lord did. And as a result, this man healed of our Lord said, please, Lord, let me go with you. And Jesus said, no, this is what I'm sending you to do. This is what I want you to do. Go home and go to your friends and tell them the great things that God or the Lord has done for you. And then we see that immediately he does what the Lord says. And it says he went back home and told everyone what Jesus had done for him. Jesus said, go tell them what God did for you. He went and told them what Jesus did for you. This man knew who Jesus was. He knew he was God, and he obeyed the Lord. The Lord sent him to be a missionary back home and to his friends. And guys, that's the most difficult mission field there is. But I'm here to tell you, like I told those young people, they come to camp, they have these experiences, they hear about the Lord, they hear about missions, and then some of them start thinking about, maybe the Lord's calling me to missions, and that's great. But you know what? If you don't love your neighbor enough to tell him the plain truth about Christ, you'll never love the man 10,000 miles away. If you can't be a witness right here, guys, you'll never be one on the other side of the world. And it's interesting that the model for that's right there in the Gospel of Mark. A man that wanted to go with Jesus instead obeyed Jesus and went back to his home and his friends. And told them everything. Now, you remember Jesus healed a lot of folks and said, don't go say anything about it. Don't go say anything about it. But this one he sent to the Gentiles and said, tell them all about it. And what's funny, this was in Mark chapter 5. When you get to Mark chapter 7, Jesus and the disciples come back to the same area that they were told by the people, depart from us. This time when they come back, the people say, this man hath done all things well. So obviously this demoniac went back and did what the Lord said and it had an effect on the people and they welcomed Christ. So I enjoy sharing things like that. We often overlook these things in the Word of God and we get hung up on, on, on points and miss other points. So rightly divide the Word of Truth, study it, and uh, consider how important it is, is for us to be a witness in these dark times. And that's why we're talking about these things. Let's go to Revelation 21. We've been looking at some patterns of future things. We've been looking at some details of a future city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And these things are often glossed over in the churches. In fact, some preachers never even touch these chapters in Revelation. They camp out in certain places in the Scriptures and never leave because they don't want to deal with the hard truth. <clears throat> But we need to talk about these patterns. 
And we don't need to gloss over them because we need for them to have the same effect upon us that similar things had upon Israel or were designed to have upon her in the Old Testament. God showed Israel patterns of future things, a future temple, a future earthly Jerusalem, and He told them why. Number one, that they would be ashamed of their iniquities, that they would see these things and be ashamed of their iniquities and turn back to Him. And secondly, that they would stop being weak, that they would stop being cowards, that they would see these things strengthen their hands and put away their fears. I think we need to do the same things. I think when we hear about these things, instead of sitting back, oh, the sweet by and by, we need to be ashamed of our iniquities as lukewarm Laodicean Christians here in America. And make no mistake, we all are. The churches are full of the unconverted. They're full of cowards and weaklings. We need to, to be ashamed of these things and have the same response that Israel had. Strengthen our hands in these dark times and put away our fear and be witnesses with power. The same power that the apostles had to give testimony of our Lord's resurrection. So may these things make us ashamed and strengthen our hands. That's why. So that we're Laodicea no longer. The Laodicean Christians didn't know they were weak. But if we'll be ashamed and know we are weak, then we are no longer Laodicea. I've been reading a big old book here, kids. And I can read pretty fast. I've got about this much done this week. But I'm a, I'm a history buff and I'm very interested in certain periods of history, particularly when you start to see things that have happened before repeat themselves. Now, guys, outside the Bible, which tells the future very in much detail before it ever happens, and everything the Bible has ever prophesied has come true, outside the Bible, there's two great predictors of the future. Two great predictors. And it sure as heck ain't the news media. It's not the astrologers. It's not the CDC. It's none of that. It's human nature. Human nature predicts the future. Because guess what, guys? From our father Adam, human nature has never changed. It's always the same. Men covet. Men serve themselves. Men are afraid. It's always been that way. It never changes. Men try to exercise authority one over another. At the end of the day, it's me that matters and no one else. At the end of the day, the love of money is the root of all evil. These things never change. So human nature is a great predictor of what's coming. The second thing that's a great predictor is human history. Because the same human nature manifests itself over and over again in a variety of places and times throughout history. And that's why human history tends to repeat itself. Man has been in rebellion against God since the Garden of Eden. And he carries that nature that can only be cleansed, that can only be regenerated by faith, by, through repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But because he carries that nature, history repeats itself. It's very interesting to me to consider the division and the chaos in our country today because it's been here before. The same type of division, the same type of pitting one political party against another, the same chaos in the streets, the same floundering economy, 
that came out of the division. It's happened before. And history shows that it was a prelude to grave judgment, grave bloodshed, and civil war. We ought to at least be taking heed. We ought to be turning off the football games and quit complaining about gas prices and, and, and be concerned that history's repeating itself. There's another period in history that's interesting to me, and it's the rise and fall of Nazi Germany, the rise and fall of the Third Reich in Germany. And guys, the division, the liberalism, the debauchery, the floundering economy, the globalism, all of that stuff we're seeing today was there in the 1920s following World War I, not just in Europe, but all over the world. All this push for globalism, the League of Nations, economies crashing, debauchery and liberalism, rise of homosexuality, all these things were there. And out of that arose a response, a response that unified the people who were sick of the globalism and the liberalism and the debauchery. And they were willing to quickly follow a man who promised he had the answers and could fix it all. And out of that arose Nazi Germany. Now, I find it very interesting because Satan throughout history has desired to bring his superman, the Antichrist, on the scene and to destroy Israel, to destroy the church, and to try to overthrow God's rule. And Satan tries to do this time and time again, and that's why you see these Antichrist-type figures arise throughout history, of which one was, was Hitler himself. But Satan's... Superman won't come until God's timing is ready. So only God ultimately allows it. So a lot of the times these things that rise up quick, that look very antichrist, will fall very quickly. And that's what happened with Nazi Germany. But what I find interesting is that the churches in Germany in the 1920s, Hitler came to power in January of 1933, were very weak. They were very lukewarm. They didn't take a stand against wickedness like they should have. And therefore, when the evil powers came into positions of power, they knew that the churches would follow them. They knew that the churches were weak, and they knew that uh, they could use them for their purposes. I think these things ought to give us fear. I want to read something that Hitler himself said. Now, Hitler was not a dummy. He's a very intelligent man, and you can accuse him of a lot of things. But one thing you can't accuse Adolf Hitler of is hiding what he intended to do. Adolf Hitler did not hide or lie about what he intended to do. Everything he did in Germany, Everything he did in seizing freedoms, uniting the people, going to war, and what he did where the Jews are concerned, all of that was laid out very plainly in his book, Mein Kampf. He didn't try to hide any of it. It wasn't hidden. The guy said what he's going to do, and he did it. And yet people were too distracted to even care. Very different, very intelligent man. But he said one of these things. He said to his aides one time, they were talking about the Christian churches, the Protestant churches there in Germany, and what they were going to do about them, and how are they going to respond to these things. And he says this, 
You can do anything you want with them. They will submit. They are insignificant little people, submissive as dogs, and they sweat with embarrassment when you talk to them. Now, isn't that just like our churches today? Oh, they'll submit. They get embarrassed if you're a little bit offended. History repeats itself. If we don't get ashamed and God doesn't give us revival, if we don't strengthen our hands, then we will be deceived and led astray by what's coming if we're not careful. Now, um, I remember back when the COVID madness started and the churches were told to shut down here and the, the lockdown orders came. We had a supporting church in this area that didn't like the fact that we were going out and preaching when we should have been staying home. They really got their panties in a wad over a sign that I used. America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. That's a quote from a Baptist preacher. It's a very Baptist thing to say, and it's been true for a long time. Got mad about that. And the pastor told me on the phone that us closing our church and obeying the governor in this has nothing to do with liberty. This has nothing to do with liberty. If they were ever to take our liberties or try to shut us down, uh, we wouldn't submit. And I said, oh, yes, you would. I find this statement, this, this, the man who wrote this book, this history of Nazi Germany, he wrote it in the 50s. He was in Nazi Germany. He served in the Nazi government and saw these things happen. And when a lot of the documents and stuff came out during the Nuremberg trials, it provided a whole host of information. So this is a history written very close to when these things happened. But he said this about the churches. And if you'll read... Uh, um, my, my wife, I saw, was reading uh, Richard Wormbrand's biography, autobiography, Tortured for Christ, in Romania. You'll find that Wormbrand says the churches were just like this when the communists took over. says it would be misleading to give the impression that the persecution of Protestants by the Nazi state tore the German people asunder or even greatly aroused the vast majority of them. It did not. A people who had so lightly given up their political and cultural and economic freedoms were not, except for a relative few, going to die or even risk imprisonment to preserve their freedom of worship. What really aroused the Germans in the 30s were the glittering successes of Hitler in providing jobs, creating prosperity, restoring Germany's military might, and moving from one triumph to another in his foreign policy. Not many Germans lost much sleep over the arrest of a few thousand pastors and priests, or over the quarreling of the various sects in Protestantism. And even fewer paused to reflect that under the leadership of men like Rosenberg, Bormann, and Heinrich Himmler, who were backed by Hitler, the Nazi regime intended eventually to completely destroy Christianity in Germany, if it could, and to substitute in its place the old paganism of the early tribal Germanic gods and the new paganism of the Nazi extremists. So guys, if you'll give up your cultural and your economic liberties, if you give up your Second Amendment liberties, your freedom of speech, you'll give up your right to worship. People aren't going to suddenly rise up and take a stand. 
And so we're seeing these things repeat themselves. Now, the, the things that Hitler preached to the German people are not the things that the people in control right now in America are preaching. The problem with the mess in America today and why you need not fear it is that its policies are just making people more and more angry with it every day. It's not unifying anybody. It's dividing people. And then secondly, there is no leader. There's no leader. Where you really need to be concerned is when policies start unifying this country. And when those policies are being shouted from the mouth of a charismatic leader, that's when the red alert ought to be going off. If we don't have revival in our churches in this country, my friends, if we don't have a spiritual awakening in this street, we will take a blue tyranny. Mark my words, these people running this country right now are evil. Our fake president is not senile. He is evil. And they deserve to die for what they've done to this country. I believe that. And there are people on both sides of that aisle that are treasonous. And should pay for it with their lives. And my prayer for them is the same prayer Jeremiah prayed against the wicked, corrupt government officials of his day. You can read that in Jeremiah 18. But mark my words, if we don't have revival in our churches, if we do not have a spiritual awakening in this land and see our spiritual problem instead of claiming it to be a political problem, we will take this blue tyranny and in its place, if the right man comes along, we will, we will, we will give him all the power he needs to, to, to clean this mess up. We'll welcome a Caesar and welcome the trampling of our Constitution if it'll get rid of this mess. And then as a result, we will have replaced a blue tyranny, tyranny with a red tyranny. And just like in Nazi Germany, it will lead to imprisonment, and real persecution of the churches. So we need to be wise. And that wisdom starts with the very things I've exhorted us to be. Ashamed of our lukewarmness, our lack of discernment, and we need to strengthen our hands and determine now that there are lines we will not cross. We will not obey. We will not submit. Caesar has no authority in this church. We need to decide that now. And so when Caesar comes along, whether it's some idiot Democrat or some power-mad Republican that says a few things we agree with, we will stand firm. Caesar has no authority here. Christ is the head of this church. And Christ is the temple of the church. And Christ is the Messiah that we should be looking for. He will ultimately put down all of these things. So be warned. History repeats itself. A lot of what was going on in Europe in the 1920s is going on right now in America. A lot of the anger we see arising, and rightfully so, that same anger arose in the 1920s, and it got behind the Nazis. This same division, this same... Chaos was in America once before and it resulted in over 600,000 lives lost in our terrible and brutal civil war. So do we want to repeat these things? If we don't, we better wake up. And so may we wake up today by considering some patterns of future things. We've been talking about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
that John saw come down from heaven. The future home of the believer. The future home of the, the bride of Christ. And last week, we see a lot of things about this city in chapter 21. It's descent, it's construction, it's dimension, it's walls, it's substance. Last week, we started talking about its nightlife. Yes, this future city has a nightlife. But its nightlife is quite unlike the typical city's nightlife we see today. We saw last week in verses 22 and 23 that the nightlife of this future city is actually a night light. It has no temple and it has no need of the light or the sun because the Lamb, the Lord, His glory, His presence, and the Lamb, they are not only the temple of this city, they are the light of this city. I talked about how this future city, it's the only mothership, alien mothership that will ever come to earth. And the devil knows that. Why do you think he uses Hollywood and the government and, 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 and uh, experiences that people have to try to make us believe there's a bunch of aliens out there? He knows what's coming. And when Christ comes for his church, he wants everybody to think aliens are involved so they'll turn away from God. But there's only one mothership ever come to this earth, and that's the new Jerusalem. It brings the Lamb who comes to reign over this earth. It will be suspended above the earth. We talked about how it will be above the sun and the moon. It won't need the light of the sun or the moon, and yet it will be visible to all below. So I want to look this week at verse 24 and hopefully get through verses 20 to verse 27. So we're looking at the nightlife of the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 24, we're going to see that that nightlife is actually praise and worship. It's not a party. In verse 25, we're going to see that the nightlife is actually daylife. Not darkness and not things done in the shadows. In verse 26, we're going to see that the nightlife is, sancti- is a sanctified stream, not a sewer pipe of iniquity like we see today in America's city. And in verse 27, we're going to see something that makes a lot of people squirm. Pastors in the pulpits, Christians in the pews. God discriminates, my friends. Almighty God segregates. And not everybody's welcome in this future city. The nightlife is a VIP lounge. It's not open to everyone. We ought to consider these things and contrast them with what makes a city so wicked. It's nightlife. That's why people go and that's where they're defiled. But not here. Now, before we get started in these verses specifically, I've talked about this before. There are about four or five entities, and it depends on whether you consider the church itself and her future home, this city, to be one entity or two. There are four or five entities that are actually going to be in this present creation. They will transcend it and continue into the new heavens and the new earth when God destroys this present creation after Christ's millennial reign. So there are four to five entities that will continue from the present on through the millennium, after the millennium, into the new heaven and the new earth where dwells righteousness. One of those is the Word of God. The Word of God will always exist. The Word of God is settled forever. Psalm 138.2, we're told that God magnifies His Word even above His name. 
And we know God's name is going to continue from this creation into the next. So what he magnifies above it will as well. Secondly, there's another entity that will continue. It will be in the present creation and it will continue into the new heavens and the new earth. It's what the Old Testament calls tophet. Anybody know what the New Testament term for that is? The lake of fire. The lake of fire. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet, the future Hitler and the future Goebbels. He's going to cast them into the lake of fire alive. And they'll be there throughout the millennium. At the end of that thousand-year reign, Christ will throw the devil in there. And then the dead, death and hell, will be raised up and judged. And then death and hell will be cast into that lake of fire. And then comes the new heavens and the new earth. And Isaiah 66, the very last verse, tells us that that burning that God ignites with the breath of his mouth will continue forever. It'll be a forever testimony that will be seen from a distance giving testimony to God's judgment over sin. It will continue. The nation of Israel will continue from this present creation. God has preserved it as He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one word proof that the Bible is true is Israel. She is still here today. She will be persecuted terribly during the tribulation. Satan will try to extinguish her through Antichrist. And yet she will endure. She will be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. She will be restored. Earthly Jerusalem will be the capital of Christ's kingdom. Christ will reign over her. And she will fulfill all the promises made of her she too will continue on into the new creation. There will be a nation of Israel. God told Israel in Isaiah 66, just as I'll create a new heavens and a new earth, so your seed and your people will continue. The church is another entity that will continue throughout. We are here now. We will be preserved. Christ said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The church will be raptured out prior to the coming of the tribulation. The church will return with Christ to put down the man of sin and the armies of this world gathered against Jerusalem. The church will live and reign with Christ in the millennium. And then she will continue. Ephesians chapter 2, 6 and 7. And Christ hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, not this age, not this creation, but in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So we're not looking forward to a millennial age, a golden age here on earth. We're not even necessarily looking forward to just a future age, singular, in a new heavens and a new earth. God says that we'll be preserved, those of us by grace, saved, saved by grace through faith, for the ages to come. I don't know what God has planned in the new heavens and the new earth. I just know that His church that has been built, the gates of hell will not prevail against us and it will transcend. And then finally, you can probably include this with the bride of Christ, is the, is the, is the heavenly Jerusalem. I believe it will come down during the millennium. It will be suspended above the earth. It will be seen. It's not the earthly Jerusalem that will be rebuilt with a, a rebuilt temple as Ezekiel tells us. But it will be the home of the church. She will have special access to carry out our Lord's will 
and her governing responsibilities. And then when this present creation is destroyed, she too will continue into the new heavens and the new earth. John sees this new city come down in the new creation at the beginning of chapter 21. But then we're going to see clues in these verses today and later in chapter 22 that this city is also present in the millennium. The first clue was in verse 10 of chapter 21. John, after he sees the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and the things that await that, he's told, come here a minute, by one of the angels that had the seven last vials of God's judgment. Come here a minute, I want to show you something. And then John is taken, just like Jesus was when Satan tempted him, he was carried away to a great and high mountain and shown the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending. Now, he's already seen it descend to the new heavens and the new earth. And then he's taken and given more detail about it to a great and high mountain of this earth and also shown it descending. So that's our first clue, that this is not only our eternal home, but our kingdom home when Christ comes to reign for a thousand years. The second clue is in verse 24. It says, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So, there are nations which are saved, we're told. And they will walk in the light of it. So if this city is suspended above the earth, above the sun and the moon, which I believe are local bodies, then those that walk and do their business here on earth will walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth, not the new heaven and the new earth, will bring glory and honor to it. There we see or have a great clue that this city will be present in the millennial kingdom. Well, what are the nations that are saved? What is that talking about? Does that mean saved from sin? Saved like a man is saved when he's born again? Well, no. Zechariah 14, 16 tells us what this is referring to. It's talking about the exact same time period. Everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. Those are the nations which are saved. Those that survived the incredible apocalyptic cataclysm of Armageddon in that last great battle when Christ comes and overthrows the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet. There will be those that survive. Everyone that is left of those nations are the nations that are saved. We see in um, Psalm 86 that God has made all nations and that there's coming a time when all nations that he has made will actually worship him. Well, there are nations that survive and those that survive will be nations in Christ's kingdom and for a time they will all worship him. All will be well. And the scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus talks a little bit about this in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the separating of the nations and their judgment based upon their actions toward his brethren, the Jews. And I believe that refers to the ill will that's coming toward them, the ill treatment in the time of tribulation. Matthew 25, those are the Messiah's Nuremberg trials. 
After the fall of Nazi Germany, a lot of those Nazi leaders and a lot of those evil men were held accountable at Nuremberg, the very place in Germany where the Nuremberg laws against the Jews were proclaimed. They were held accountable and they paid for their crimes. The leaders of this earth will be held accountable. The Messiah will have his Nuremberg trials. Matthew 25, the sheep will be separated from the goats. Some will enter in the kingdom, others into hell. But the nations that survive, everyone that's left, they will walk in the light of this future city. It will be present. Now, when it refers to kings of the earth in verse 24, that's also referring to something in our present creation. Jesus spoke of Gentile power structure, how Gentile kings and Gentile authorities exercise authority one over another. That's something that's tied to this earth, guys. We're not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to be seeking to one-up each other and get an advantage over each other. We're, We're to be servants one to another, not like the Gentile kings. That's something tied to this earth. And so when we see kings, earthly kings, bringing glory and honor, we know that they're bringing glory and honor to something that is here in this present creation. So again, another clue there. Walk in the light of it. I believe, like I said last week, this heavenly Jerusalem will be suspended above the sun and moon. It will be visible in the sky from the earth below and it will be casting a light just like... Excuse me, guys. I've got a little bit of a scratchy throat this morning. But it will be casting a light just like the planets do in the sky. Have you guys ever really taken time to look at the planets at night? When we were walking in Nebraska back in June, there was one night we saw Venus very clearly. And I believe what we also saw was Mercury. Now, if what NASA tells us about the size of the sun and how far it is away from the earth, it would be impossible to see Mercury. But you can see Mercury. It's got a yellowish hue. But you can see the planets and they kind of move. They're not like the stars. They're not fixed in a specific position relative one to another. The planets move. And just like they cast light on the earth, and you can see them all over the world when they're in the night sky, it'll be the same with the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, I mean, they will cast their light. uh, The heavenly Jerusalem will cast their light like the planets. But unlike the planets, she will be fixed not roving around, moving around in the sky. She'll be fixed like Polaris, the North Star. Have you ever noticed how the North Star is fixed in the sky and everything moves around it? We got to, I got to, to point that out to Eric and Bethany and Carter when we were walking in Nebraska. And it's amazing. It's fixed in the heavens. It doesn't move. And that really caused a lot of things. NASA, not a space agency, never a straight answer. Calls a lot of things they say into question. The word planet comes from a Greek word, planetos, and it appears once in the Bible. Once in the Bible. And it's in the book of Jude. And it's used, it's translated wandering. That word in Greek means a wanderer. The planets are not stars that are fixed, they wander around, they pop up at different places in the sky, they're wanderers. And that word comes from another Greek word, which means a deceiver. Have you ever wondered why all the planets are named after false devil gods? 
and they move around in the sky. There's something spiritual about everything in this earth, everything in the heavens. And man thinks he knows everything about everything. He doesn't know near as much as he thinks he knows. But the heavenly Jerusalem will be like that North Star. It'll be like the planets casting their light. But it'll be fixed like the North Star that never moves. And all the other stars move around it in the night. And yet they are fixed in relationship one to another. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. That means that somehow this city will be accessible. Somehow it will be accessible to the earthly governments during that period of Christ's reign. Probably or possibly via the earthly Jerusalem and connected to the Feast of Tabernacles. Look at Zechariah 14. There's an interesting uh, picture of life in the future millennial kingdom of Christ. The thousand year reign that precedes the new heaven and the new earth. It says this, Zechariah 14 verse 16. This is after Zechariah predicts or prophesies the battle of Armageddon. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, I quoted that just a few minutes ago, shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Just like Psalm 86 that was quoted this morning, prophesies. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So those nations that after some time decide they're not going to go up anymore, they're not going to bring their glory and honor anymore, God will smite them with plagues. So there will even be a spirit of rebellion that begins to arise under Christ's reign, future reign. Verse 19, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. So perhaps this bringing of glory and honor is connected with the feast of tabernacles and it's via the earthly Jerusalem that will exist and have a temple as the capital of the earth during Christ's thousand year reign. Some will bring it all, all will bring glory and honor for a time, but then some will cease to do so. And it's out of this failure that the seed of rebellion will arise. And when Satan is let loose at the end, the nations will gather get together against Christ and his church. And try to do what man's tried to do time and time again and always failed. Rebel against God's authority. And we saw in Revelation 20 what happens. Fire from God comes down and devours them before they can even lift a hand. So, the nightlife of this city is not a party, guys. It is in most cities. It's a party. Go up here to downtown Hickory on a Friday night. Go up there near the club cabaret where the homos and the trannies are hanging out. Party. That's the nightlife of Hickory. The rest of the town is pretty quiet. You've got some restaurants and stuff up there. That's nightlife. That's defilement. But not so here. This nightlife's not a party. It's worship time. It's a worship service. It's praise and worship. The kings of the earth bring honor and glory unto the Lord. 
Verse 26, I speak plain, folks. Call them like I see them. Homo's a homo, a tranny's a tranny, and it's abomination to God. Verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. This nightlife is not just praise and worship, it's day life. The gates are always open. There's no night. Well, we know that the sun and the moon are here during Christ's millennial kingdom, for they burn seven times brighter than they do now. It's like a veil's been removed. But there can only be no night if this city is suspended above those things, and it is. There's no night there. The gates are always open. Always. Nightlife is daylight. Verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. The kings bring their glory and honor, and the nations bring their glory and honor. There's a steady stream of those that come to, as we're told in Zechariah 8, that prophesies also of these things, they come to seek the Lord and to pray before the Lord. It reminds me of what took place in Solomon's day. I'll just real quickly look at 1 Kings chapter 4. This gives you a good visual of what we're seeing here. 1 Kings chapter 4, 34. And there came of all the people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. There's one greater than Solomon that's coming to reign. And the nations will come to hear his wisdom. They will come to bring honor and glory. It says in Zechariah 8. I hadn't used this Bible enough. It's a little hard to turn the pages and get where I'm going quick. Zechariah 8, 21 and 22. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. So this glory and honor is connected with that earthly Jerusalem, probably the Feast of Tabernacles. And people are jumping at the bit to go. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and they will go to Jerusalem to see it and to hear it. A steady stream. Glory and honor will flow in and out of this heavenly Jerusalem via the earthly Jerusalem. Unlike the iniquity of earthly cities that pour in and out like a flood. In fact, I'd say that the United States exports a lot of things around the world. We import a lot of things too. But our chief export is iniquity. We export evil and sin and iniquity to the nations who want to be like us. Not this city. It's a steady stream of honor and glory. Nations will bring honor and glory perhaps associated with offerings they bring to earthly Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, the annual Feast of Tabernacles, then they will leave with a blessing. They will bring honor and glory and they will leave with a blessing. They will not leave defiled like many who move to the city and then later leave. 
There are these folks that are moving into these more conservative states to flee what they have, what they've been defiled by in their liberal states. The sad thing is they're bringing that defilement here, and we're letting them do it, and it's all going to be defiled. You can come here if you want. You know, they say there's, two, there's, there's difference between, a, and I don't mean to use this. This is an old thing. You know, there were a lot of folks from up north that moved down here after the Civil War. And they talked about the difference between, uh, and, 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 and Miss Jacqueline, I hope you'll appreciate this. Difference between a Yankee and a damn Yankee. <laughs> Yankee's one who came and came and were part of us. Or maybe he came and went back, but he came and settled down and was one of us. The damn Yankee is the one who came and never let, left and brought his Yankeeism down here to try to control us. <laughs> so there ain't going to be none of that in the New Jerusalem. There ain't going to be none of that like it is in these states today where all these people from California are bringing their damn politics in there and corrupting everything. It won't be like that. It will be glory and honor brought in, glory and honor brought out. I look forward to that. Because you don't see it here. Let me say a little something about Yankee hospitality versus Southern hospitality, though. And I've seen this with my own eyes. We pride ourselves in our Southern hospitality here in the South. We speak to one another, wave at one another. Hey, man, if you ever need anything, give me a call. I'll help you out. But you know when your neighbor says that down here, you'd never call him at 3 in the morning because you know he doesn't mean it. A lot of it's fake. When I rode my bicycle up north years ago, not many folks waved at you. Not many folks shot the breeze with you. Not many folks talked to you too much. But when a guy offered his hospitality, you knew he meant it. And I saw some hospitality up north that I hear people talk about down here, but I rarely see it. So, you know, I'll take, that, I'll take that Yankee hospitality any day over this fake Southern hospitality. You just wanted to throw that out there, sister. Just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> American by birth, Southern by the grace of God, and a guy that loves that Yankee hospitality because he's been the benefactor of it many times. Some folks were very kind to me when I rode my bicycle up north years ago to preach the gospel. I never forgot about that. Kind to a stranger. Nations will bring their glory and honor. They will not be defiled. It says they'll leave with a blessing. The last verse in Zechariah. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them. Just like Joseph stuck those vessels in the bags of feed that his brothers took back, a gift. Those that come and bring their glory and honor will leave with vessels that are blessed. And called holiness unto the Lord. They'll take them and they'll use them. They'll seed therein. People's dishes will be holiness unto the Lord. A blessing that they will leave with. The nightlife is a sanctified stream. Verse 25. Not a sewer pipe like Hollywood is today. Like New York and Chicago. I was talking to somebody this week about Chicago. And I said to them... I wouldn't go to Chicago if my life depended on it. I have no use for that city. No reason to go in that city. And I don't care if Moody Bible Institute's there. I don't care if Moody used to preach there and was used of God there in a mighty way, and he was. 
I wouldn't go to Chicago today. There's nothing that would make me want to go there. I have no use for New York City. No use. Now, you can go there if you want to. You have freedom to travel, move around, do what you please, but I have no use for these places. They are cesspools of iniquity. But everybody's going to want to go to that heavenly Jerusalem one day. Verse 27. I'll wrap this up today. The nightlife. And here's where we get a little squirmy. And here's our last clue that this city is indeed present in the millennium, in the present creation, as it will continue into the new creation. Verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the things that defile, the abomination, the lies, they're still around. And they won't be be able to access this city. Now they're still around, but Peter tells us in the new creation there dwells righteousness. There there are none of these things. So there'd be no need to even say this if we're talking about a city and a new heaven and a new earth only. But we're talking about a city that's also around when these things are around. And they will be. And they'll be exploited. And it won't be because the devil made me do it. That old devil's going to be cast into hell for, or the abyss for a thousand years. And when he's let out at the end, he's already going to find this stuff. And he's going to exploit it to try to make one last overthrow. We read about that in Revelation 20. So the devil made me do it. It's never been a good excuse and it won't be. In the new heavens and the new earth dwells righteousness, but here there's still the presence, the seed of evil in rebellious hearts of men, even though they're under the authority of Christ the King, the Redeemer, and even though he rules with a rod of iron and absolute authority, Man, like he's done since the Garden of Eden, whether he's in innocence or whether he's under the arm, the, 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 the uh, iron rod of Christ, man will fail if left to himself. But these things are barred from the bride's home. They're barred. Not alive. On May 5th, 2004... Our ministry, Full Proof Gospel and Ministries, was officially organized. Our original Articles of Association, it's funny, I signed it as the president. Jamie was the vice president of the ministry for a short time. That's not the case anymore. I'm thankful for a board of trustees that hold us accountable in our work. But in Article 9 of our original organizing doctrine, we, document, we had this statement. This association shall have a racially non-discriminatory policy and therefore shall not discriminate against anyone on the basis of race, color, national, or ethnic origin. And we don't. Never have. Have no reason to. There's only one human race and every human has the same blood and every human was created by God and we all come from the same father, not just Adam, but... Years and years later, we all came from Noah and his three sons. Maybe Noah had more children, and that explains some other groups. But we all came from Noah. So, I mean, we have no reason to be anything but racially non-discriminatory. Or we have no reason to discriminate as Christians. 
because the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. So yeah, we, we don't. When it comes to our audience, who we're willing to call, call to repentance and whom we're willing to tell about salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ, we don't discriminate based on religion, sex, or gender either. Because everybody needs to be saved. We'll talk to anybody about the gospel. But when it comes to who works with us and who we associate with and who we align ourselves with, you better believe we discriminate and you better believe we segregate. You better believe we ain't going to be yoking up with Catholics and Mormons and lukewarm Christians. We're not going to be yoking up with homos and trannies. We're not going to be yoking up with Democrats or the Republican Party. We're not yoking up with these people. Now, we'll talk to all of them about Jesus, but we're not going to yoke up with them and work with them. We can't do that. But I stand by this statement that was in our original document. We keep it there. Now, notice we don't follow the ways of the world. We don't acknowledge this Title IX garbage where we don't discriminate against anybody based on this, this, or this. And therefore, yoke up with all kinds of evil because we're just like, you know, the one Hitler talked about in Christians that would submit to anything because we get so embarrassed when, when somebody tries to talk to us. But there's no Title IX, there's no non-discriminatory statement in the New Jerusalem, guys, because God discriminates and He segregates. He doesn't do it based on skin color, never has. Jesus was born a Jew, not a white man, not a black man either. Those that tell you Jesus was black are just as foolish and stupid as those that tell you he was white. He was Jewish. God doesn't discriminate based on race, but he discriminates. And he discriminates based on righteousness. He says homosexuality is an abomination. Adultery is sin. Lying is sin. Covetousness is idolatry. Lust is adultery. Hatred is murder in God's eyes. The only bed that's undefiled is the marriage bed. God discriminates. The Lamb discriminates. Just because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave doesn't mean everybody's automatically saved. Salvation's available, but it's not automatic. It's free, but it came at great cost. The Son of God shed His blood. But you don't come to God on your terms. God discriminates. You come on His terms. Repent and believe on the Messiah. You don't serve God on His terms either. I enjoyed talking to those young folks about that this past week. You don't serve Him on your terms either. But God doesn't have any use for this Title X garbage that lets girls go into a boy's bathroom or boys go into a girl's bathroom in a, in, in a, in a school. Foolishness. The same foolishness that was in the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s. Same foolishness. There's always a reaction to that stuff, folks. Sometimes it's not good. There shall in no wise enter into it any of these things. That word no wise in the Greek is a double negative. We're, we're told in English we don't Double negatives are grammatically incorrect, but not in Greek. They're very much grammatically correct. It's a double negative. In other words, it means not a chance. 
No way, no how is this stuff coming into this city. No way, no how. Zechariah says the same thing. At the very end of the book, we're told that there are are certain type of folks not coming in this city. They're not even going to be allowed into the earthly Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14, very end of the book. And there shall no more be the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. The Canaanite spiritually represents all of these things that Revelation lists here. Won't even be allowed. Won't be allowed. Now here's what we need to pause to consider when we think about this heavenly city that awaits the true bride of Christ one day. Think for a moment. Nearly all government leaders and government workers in Washington would be banned from entering this city. Not allowed. And yet, when they say jump, we say how high. Go figure. Most of our state governments and state leaders wouldn't be allowed in there. That old fool Governor Cooper wouldn't be allowed in there. And yet, when he says... You better wear a mask. You better stay home. You shouldn't go to church. We just say, okay, sir. Yes, Massa. Heil. Heil Cooper. He won't be allowed in this city. He better repent. Because hellfire's coming for him. The overwhelming majority of Americans won't be welcome in this city. Or wouldn't, wouldn't be welcome today. And even more sad than any of this is a lot of folks meeting in church today. And a whole slew of American pastors would be banned from entering this city if it were here today. Because all of these things we're told will in no wise enter in, prevail in these institutions. Guys in the New Jerusalem one day, no trannies, homo no mo, no homos. No Democrats, no perverts, no communists, no sodomites, no Muslims, no Mormons, no Jehovah's Witnesses, no Buddhists, no mainstream media journalists. None of those people on the TV will be in there, will be allowed in there. No gay pride, no abortion doctors, not a single one. No politicians, zero no fake Christians. None of that will be allowed. It won't come in. The nightlife will be VIP access only. VIP. Those that have the name of the Lamb on their foreheads. The nightlife of this city won't be when all the riffraff comes out like it does in Las Vegas like it does in L.A., like it does in the Castro District of San Francisco, it'll be VIP access. Only genuine believers, the bride of Christ, will be allowed within the city limits. Those on the Lamb's VIP list and with the name of the city written upon them. Well, who are those? Well, we're shown these. In the letters to the seven churches there in Revelation 2 and 3. To the church at Philadelphia that kept Christ's word. It says, He that overcometh will be a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall no more go out. 
And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. That's who will be allowed to enter. To the church at Sardis that had a name that she was living and yet she was dead, there was even a remnant there. And to that remnant, Jesus made this promise. Again, I'm having a little trouble turning in my Bible. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Those that are in the Lamb's book of life can enter. Your name's in the Lamb's book of life, you'll have access. Are you in the Lamb's book of life? Will you have access? Will you rule and reign with Christ not only for a thousand years in this present creation, with this city as your home, but in the eternities and the ages to come? If you're not in that book of life, you won't. Who's in the Lamb's book of life? Answers that for us right here. He that overcometh. Who is he that overcometh? 1 John 5, 5 answers that question very clearly. St. John who wrote Revelation under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. He that overcometh is he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God, the Messiah, the coming King, the one with all power and authority. In Jesus Christ, God became a man. He was crucified according to the Scriptures. He was buried. And on the third day, just like He said He would and just like the Scriptures prophesied, He rose from the grave. And not only that, 40 days later, He, he, was, he ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Proving through His resurrection and ascension that God accepted His sacrifice, His bloodshed in our stead. Therefore, God commands men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day in which He will judge this world in righteousness by the very one He ordained when He rose Him from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be written in the book of life is to believe upon those things. To believe upon them is not to assent, but to trust in them. To be born of again. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. To be born again, my friends, is to be born of God. It's a work of God, not a work of yourself. To be born again is to be born of God. And to be born of God is to be an overcomer. And he that overcometh, Christ will not blot his name out of the book of life. And he will have access to this future home. For the saints. VIP access to the new Jerusalem. In Christ's millennial kingdom. And permanent residence there. For all eternity. There's only one way. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a weakling hanging on a cross friends. He is what he declares. In Matthew 28, 18. 
And I enjoyed speaking that this week down there at Camp Caraway. We talk about the Great Commission all the time. Jesus is commissioned to go and preach the gospel. He said five times in the New Testament. But we gloss over the most important part of it. And that's 2818. All power is given me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go. The one we preach has all power and authority. And he's going to put it all down and fix it all. Let's not put our trust in someone else. Let's don't put it in Trump or Republicans or MAG or any of this garbage that will fall short because it has no basis in the word of God. As we consider these things, let's be ashamed of our lukewarmness. Just like these patterns were given to Israel to make her ashamed. And let's strengthen our hands. Those of us that are saved and are resting in these things, let's strengthen our hands and cease fearing in these times. We need to speak out now so that when graver evil comes, we've already drawn the lines in the sand and there'll be no debate. All right, that's the end of chapter 21. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We'll start in that chapter 22 next week. The first five verses still deal with this new Jerusalem. It's civic affairs. We've talked about its nightlife. We're going to talk about its civic affairs. And then we're going to get into the epilogue of the book. Guys, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. All praise to God. Let's pray. Father... We pause to acknowledge you and to thank you for the power of your word. We're, we're here to thank you for the glimpse you've given us, a very detailed glimpse of future things upon which we can hope. You've not left us in the dark. Your word says, eyes not seen, ears not heard, heard the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But these things have been revealed by your spirit and they're revered right here in the word of God. And we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that these Patterns of future things will compel us to be ashamed where we have been weak and lukewarm. They will compel us to strengthen our hands and to fear the Lord and to serve Him in these dark days. Thank you, Lord, that there's coming righteousness that will put down this evil. We're thankful that there's coming a home for the believer, the very home Jesus said He was going to prepare. And it's coming. And they won't be able to come in there and defile that like, like our cities have been defiled. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. It will need no sun, no moon, no temple. For the Lamb and the Shekinah glory of God will lighten it. We're thankful for that, Lord. Let, may we not lay up treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. May we lay up treasure in this future city so that we'll one day be used by you. Knowing that, may we be used by you now to go out and preach everywhere like your disciples did that men should repent. And that we would see men repent out of all of these dregs of society that we've talked about. We'd see men repent and come out of it and come into the church, come into the ark before it's too late. Lord, bless the meal we're about to partake of. May it give us strength and nourishment as your word has given us today. We ask these things in Jesus, the Messiah's name. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. To him belong with glory, honor, power, majesty, and dominion both now and ever. Amen.